In the 14th century, Italian poet Dante Alighieri penned his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. The epic poem tells the story of a lost pilgrim who is guided through hell to meet his beloved in heaven. This fantastic journey is also a coded allegory. Hidden in the symbolism is a much deeper story with a map of history that connects Dante's life with our own. This is Dante's history. Inferno, Canto 17 Behold the monster with the pointed tail, who cleaves the hills and breaketh walls and weapons. Behold him who infecteth all the world. To sum up the poem so far, it is the year 1300, and a poet from Florence named Dante is on a spiritual pilgrimage. The ancient poet Virgil, who saved him from a dark and corrupt life, now shows him the way to paradise by first traveling through the land of the blind. On a downward spiraling path in the rocky funnel surrounding a massive abyss, they have traversed seven of the nine major circles of the inferno, encountering tortured souls caught in an eternal cycle of punishment fitting their destructive crimes. In the last canto, the pilgrim met with three former Florentine nobles who failed to live up to their noble virtues. They cared more about their earthly desires and their reputations, and thus allowed Florence to slip into a state of chaos. In this canto, our duo will finally make their way down to the eighth circle, but not before encountering the Beast of Fraud and one last group of violent sinners, the Usurers. Virgil opens this canto with a description of the beast mentioned in the last canto, which ended with a literal cliffhanger as Dante stood at the edge of the seventh circle and described something swimming up from the chasm below. The poet continues this allusion to the abyss as a body of water as the pilgrim speaks of Virgil beckoning the beast to the shore. The monster is described as an image of deceit. Its head and body come ashore, but its tail remains in the abyss. Dante will spend the next few tercets describing this image in detail. His description breaks the monster down into three main parts. A head, which has the seemingly harmless face of a man. A body that consists of hairy or furry limbs with pawed feet. And a serpentine trunk with a pointed tail. The body is described as having circles or nooses and shields. We can sort of imagine these furry arms having ringed spots like a leopard and the serpentine trunk having shield-like dragon scales. But medieval dragons were also often depicted as having little circles on their body. This also may symbolically represent snares or hidden traps and the protection that subterfuge and deception provides. The paws, likewise, contain unseen claws. The color and embroidered texture of the beast is also compared to the cloth of the Tartars and the Turks, who also made some of the most sought-after fabrics of the time. It is said to be even more alluring than the fabric made by Arachne, the Lydian embroiderer who challenged Minerva, the goddess of art and trade, and was transformed into a spider. This, by the way, is the third canto in a row where Dante alludes to clothing, an industry which was at the heart of Florentine commerce. 
Dante then gives three more analogies to describe the beast's posture. It is said to be similar to a type of rowboat that has come partially ashore. He also compares it to beavers in Germany who sit beside the riverbank with their tails in the water. The beaver analogy is based on a mythical belief about beavers that they use their tails to lure in and trap fish. Since beavers don't eat fish, this is likely due to a confusion with fish-eating otters or badgers, all of which would have been more common in Germany at the time. Finally, the beast's tail is compared to a scorpion tail, ready to strike, but hidden, like a concealed weapon. Though he is not named until well into this canto, this beast of fraud is known as Gerion, a figure from classic literature. He was a king of the Balearic Seas of Spain, known for having a kind face and a welcoming demeanor. He supposedly used this politeness and flattery to attract strangers into his dwelling before killing them. Traditionally, Gerion is depicted as having three heads, and in some cases three bodies. He was famously slewn by Heracles as part of his tenth labor. In that myth, Gerion carried three shields, three spears, and wore three helmets. But Dante's description of him is likely inspired by the deceitful characters in the Bible, like the serpent in Genesis, or this passage in Revelations. And in appearance, the locusts were like horses made ready for battle, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had tails like those of scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and they had the power to harm mankind. Dante's Gerion may also be inspired by the fabled Manticore, a creature similar to the Sphinx of Egypt, with the body of a lion and the face of a man. In the original Indian myths, they were called Martichoras, or man-eaters, and they had three rows of teeth and spiked tails with spines that could shoot like arrows. Dante's referencing animals like the spider, scorpion, and serpent predators who use subterfuge and wait for the right moment to strike. We'll come back to Gerion in just a bit. First, the pilgrim must meet one last group of sinners in the circle of violence, those who are violent against art. Virgil tells the pilgrim that they must divert from their usual direction leftward following the boiling stream, so they can descend from the raised bank. The last time there was a mention of a right turn was among the heretics. Some commentators interpret this as Virgil stressing the need for spiritual devotion, or the right path, when approaching this malevolent creature. The poet also notes that they take ten steps, which is possibly symbolic of the Ten Commandments. As they approach the beast, the pilgrim notices another group of sinners sitting in the flaming sand at the edge of the abyss. Then Virgil does something he has rarely done on the journey and will never do again. He tells the pilgrim to go experience this group on his own. He also asks Dante to make it quick. While he is gone, Virgil will be petitioning the beast for a ride. This sad group is forced to sit in the burning sands. Because of this, they are constantly weeping and shifting their weight, 
They also wave their hands around to fan away the flames. Dante compares them to a dog in the summer, scratching at a flea or flybite. These are the usurers, first mentioned back in Canto 11. As a reminder, usury was the act of lending money at interest, or more broadly, using money to make money. Virgil described usury as violence against art. Art in this sense refers to one's contribution to society by way of trade or commerce. The usurer is essentially taking a shortcut by earning profit off the labor of others. As we recall from the previous two cantos, this fiery desert is barren and hostile, symbolic of the mindset of those who engage in violence against God, nature, and order. This fire they are constantly trying to avoid symbolizes their existential restlessness. The constant movement of the hands of the usurers could also be seen as symbolic of their moving of money from hand to hand. The pilgrim notes how he doesn't recognize any of the faces of these souls. The fire has stripped them of their identity. But this trait is also shared with the greedy souls of the fourth circle. Wealth obsession is like a drug addiction that overpowers the individual's distinctive traits. Their identity is no longer in who they are, but what they worship and who they represented. Hanging from each of their necks is a pouch, or as Dante calls it, a borsa, which was a term for a money changer's purse. Each purse contains a herald, and each money changer's eyes are transfixed on their own symbol their last sense of identity. You may recall the Florentine purse maker mentioned in the last canto who warned of the greed prevalent in Florence. In the Middle Ages, wealth and wealth accumulation was widely considered not only detestable, but criminal. Still, there was a growing class of wealthy nobles and merchants who would flaunt their wealth. One practice gaining popularity was to wear highly adorned belts with prominent money pouches bearing their family crest. In contrast to this practice, monks like those in one of the confraternities of the cord wore simple knotted ropes to symbolize their vow of poverty. This may also be part of the reason Virgil used Dante's cord to lure the beast of fraud in the last canto. While we don't know these souls by name, we can guess who they represent by Dante's description of the crests on their pouches. The first crest is yellow and contains the blue figure of a lion. This was the coat of arms of the Gianfigulazzi, a faction of the Black Guelph who were exiled from Florence multiple times. The next crest is blood red and bears a white goose. This was the family crest of the Ubriaci, who were Ghibellines in Florence. Dante is showing us here that the sin of usury was not a matter of political affiliation. As the pilgrim is describing the next symbol, a blue pig on white, its owner suddenly speaks to him. He asks what Dante is doing here, but doesn't wait for an answer, and instead suggests the pilgrim get going. He also gives the pilgrim a message for the living, predicting that his neighbor, Vitaliano, will soon be joining him on his left-hand side. The soul says he is from Padua. From this and other descriptions, Historians have concluded that this is Rinaldo della Scrovini, 
a very wealthy usurer. His son Arrigo was reportedly so worried about his father's eternal soul that he commissioned the building of a chapel in his honor. Scrovini Chapel in Padua features stunning frescoes by the master painter Giotto, including a depiction of hell inspired by Dante's Inferno. Giotto and Dante were reportedly friends, and the mural was being painted while the poet was still alive. He may have even seen it while visiting Padua during his exile. The neighbor Rinaldo speaks of is thought to be Vitaliano del Dente, another usurer who was still alive while the poem was being written, although there is some debate about this. But by saying Vitaliano will be on his left, the seat of honor in hell, Rinaldo is implying that Vitaliano's sin has been greater, and therefore he will be slightly deeper in hell. Rinaldo then goes on to mock the Florentine usurers nearby, recounting their prophecy about a cavalier who will bring a pouch with three goats. This is another prophecy about a Florentine usurer named Giovanni Buamonte of the Bici family, whose crest reportedly contained three goats on a yellowish-white background. Buamonte was a well-known usurer who was knighted shortly before this poem was taking place. But even as Dante started writing Inferno, the Florentine Merchant Society had charged Buomonte with theft for stealing money and property. Here, he is being referred to as the potential prince of the usurers, an idea that may bother Rinaldo, who seems to be the current leader, or at least the spokesperson. Buomonte died in 1310, a bankrupt fugitive. Rinaldo sticks his tongue out at the other Florentine usurers, and Dante compares him to an ox, denoting a bestial or inhumane aspect. This may also be to highlight the competitive and antisocial quality Dante may have noticed among the usurers, or the way in which the sin of usury and greed fractures a society. The pilgrim decides to return to Virgil. When he entered this circle, Dante showed remorse for the damned and their suffering. But as he leaves each circle, the plight of the dam seems more self-imposed, and his remorse turns to pity. Virgil is already mounted upon the back of Gerion when the pilgrim returns. The guide tells Dante to prepare himself, to be strong and bold when they descend using stairs of this kind. This refers to their unconventional use of monsters to navigate the terrain of hell, something they will do two more times before this leg of their journey is complete. Virgil also encourages the poet to sit in front of him, so Virgil's spirit can protect Dante's back from the Beast of Fraud's hidden weapon, its stinging tail. The pilgrim has a shiver of terror, which he compares to someone who has a malaria-induced fever. This is haunting when you consider Dante may have died from malaria. Though he is scared, shame inspires the pilgrim to obey his guide's orders. As he's climbing upon the beast's shoulders, Dante thinks to ask Virgil to hold on to him. But Virgil seems to once again read the pilgrim's mind and does so without being asked, as he had done before when the pilgrim was, the word Dante uses is force which roughly translates to perhaps. In context here, it means doubt. Since Virgil is Dante's representation of reason, this is to say that only reason 
can protect one from what was referred to earlier as man's peculiar vice. Reason is one's protection against fraud. Virgil commands Jerrion to begin their journey and to descend slowly via large, wide circles in consideration of the unique burden he carries, namely the living pilgrim. Jerrion obeys and begins moving backwards. This is Dante continuing the metaphor of a ship as it retreats from the shore at the edge of the seventh circle and floats out into the abyss. Jerrion then turns around in the air and slithers forward like an eel through water. Since Jerrion doesn't have wings, he uses his paws to paddle through the air. To help describe the pilgrim's fear in this moment, Dante makes a couple of historical references. The first is to the moment Phaeton abandoned the rains, when the heavens first appeared scorched. This is a reference to the classical myth of Phaeton, the son of the god of the sun. When his divine parentage was doubted, he asked the sun god to let him drive the chariot that brought the sun across the sky each day. But Phaeton, terrified by the awe of the sky, particularly the constellation of Scorpio, was unable to hold the reins and nearly set the entire world on fire. Jupiter was reportedly then forced to kill him with a thunderbolt, but not before Phaeton permanently scorched the sky. This was a story told by Ovid to explain the brownish band of stars and gases in the night sky we know today as the Milky Way. The next reference Dante uses to compare his current state is to the tale of Icarus. As you may recall, Icarus, with the help of his father and a little ingenuity, gained the ability to fly. But despite his father's warnings, Icarus flew too high and too close to the sun, which melted the wax that held his wings together. So he fell to the sea and to his death. These frightening moments not only highlight a moment of danger and terror, but also pinpoint a moment of self-realization about one's own limitations and pride. The pilgrim feels for a moment like he's about to learn that lesson for being so bold. Here we see an example of the doubt caused by fraud. But in this case, Dante is protected by reason through divine intervention. At first, the pilgrim only focuses on the monster. Everything else is dark, but he can tell from the air rushing up that he is descending. Soon, the sound of crashing water on his right draws his eyes downward. This sound of roaring rapids is soon accompanied by screams and the signs of fire. This only makes the pilgrim tremble more. He compares Jerrion's slow descent to that of a falcon returning to his master after a long and unsuccessful hunt, circling back around slowly and bitterly landing far from their master's arm. Jerrion was lured by Virgil's discarding of the pilgrim's friar's cord, as if the pilgrim were abandoning his spiritual readiness and making himself prone. But Virgil, reason, replaced the cord, and the beast of fraud was himself deceived. Now Jerrion is like a disappointed falcon that didn't find his prey. The canto ends with Jerrion leaving our travelers at the bottom of the gorge near some broken rocks, which, as you may remember, is Dante's metaphor for a fractured society. 
Finally, in one last show of power and will, Jerrion shoots back up into the sky like an arrow, leaving our travelers among the ruins of the Eighth Circle of the Inferno. In the next canto, the pilgrim begins his long journey through Lower Hell and the Circle of Fraud. We'll learn a little about the structure of this circle and the different evil trenches it contains. And we'll also get to meet some of these first groups of sinners, those who commit fraud by using sex and flattery. Next time on Dante's History. I'd like to take a moment to thank my Patreon supporters, Kazuma, Edward, Steffi, and Matthew. Thank you for your support. And thank you for listening.